you have a Bible, we are in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 18. Uh, we are finishing our series called We Are Redeemer, uh, kind of an introduction uh, series that we do every fall um, to kind of start off our kind of calendar year. Um, and so this is the last sermon, and it's on, uh, well, I'm going to tell you what it's on, and we'll just kind of figure that out as we go. Um, Next week we'll be in the book of Luke, and so really looking forward to getting back in the book of Luke. I think we're Luke 13, and so we'll be preaching through that for uh, a few weeks. I want to just also tell you, um, so we have been writing a few kind of articles about the Reformation as a way to kind of slowly tell you the story of the Reformation. We have kind of started this tradition here to do a Reformation sermon every uh, October 31st. Uh, this year kind of, because October 31st is on a Saturday, we're going to have it on November the 1st, and so we're going to be talking about and, 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 and discussing and obviously teaching on the Reformation. So if you're interested in that story and, and don't want to go off and read some massive book on the story of Reformation, you can go to our website and there are a few articles already. There's two up talking about this kind of slow march to the Reformation in 1517 with Martin Luther. So if you're interested in that, please read that. It kind of can prepare you for what will happen on November the 1st on that Sunday. Um, so Acts chapter 18. The title of this sermon is, Don't Waste Your Career. Don't Waste Your Career. Kind of stole that a little from John Piper, Don't Waste Your Life. Uh, and uh, for you children, if you're, uh, I've done this kind of regularly now, uh, three words just to kind of help you and just to kind of just be aware of these three words. You can ask your parents uh, on your way home or over lunch what these words mean and how they apply to the scripture, the text. Number one is calling, calling. Number two is genuineness, genuineness. And the third one is missionary, missionary. So if your kids ask you, what is a missionary? Be prepared to answer the question, what is a missionary? So calling, genuineness, and missionary. So Acts chapter 18, 1 through 11. I love this passage. I love this passage. And you'll find out why as we go through this. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, richly come from Italy with his wife Priscilla. Because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome, and he went to see them, Paul went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he, Paul, stayed with them and worked. For they, Aquila and Priscilla, were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. Now when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that Christ was Jesus. When they opposed and reviled him, he shook off his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own head. heads. I am innocent. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titus Jotus, a worshiper of God, and his his house was next door to the synagogue, and Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And Paul stayed a year and six months, teaching the word of God among 
them. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you so much for your word. Lord, we thank you, Lord, for this topic that we're going to be discussing, Lord. Lord, we thank you, Lord, as we, as we think about the life of Paul. Lord, how you not only did you call him to salvation, he was living a life, Lord, thinking that he was doing your will and by arresting and having Christians, the, the, the people of the way, the people of Christ killed, and how you blinded him on the way to Damascus, Lord, and you called him to saving grace. You saved him from his sins. He was the chief of all sinners, Paul says, and you saved him, Lord. And then you called him to, to ministry. You used him as an instrument in your hand. And you sent him to different cities around the world, Lord, to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that you would help us to see that calling of, of salvation, but also the calling, Lord, to be a, not only a follower of Christ, but be a missionary of Christ. Lord, we, we pray for our, our friends and, and members of our church and, and family members who are, who are away from us right now. We pray for especially Eddie Parker, who's been working in the COVID uh, wing at, at, at Deaconess. Lord, I pray for him. He explained to us on Thursday how stressed he is. Lord, how all the nurses in our area are stressed, Lord, as they deal with COVID. Lord, we pray for our health workers, Lord. We pray for our teachers also who are, are, are having to, to just... Teach children, but also keep them safe as well, how difficult that is. Lord, we pray for everyone else, Lord, as they deal with working and dealing with relationships, but also with, under the umbrella of this COVID-19 pandemic, Lord. Lord, we pray that you continue to keep us safe, continue to watch over us, Lord, and use us for, for the sake of your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So the, the main idea is... Um, Share the gospel of Christ Jesus regularly where you are calling, where you are called, knowing Christ is with you. Share the gospel of Jesus Christ regularly where you are called, knowing Christ is with you. So one of the things I, I wrote about this in a, in a paper once, that diversity is diversity is in very many different uh, levels. You can have diversity of race, you can have diversity of income. You can have diversity of genders. You can have so many different types of, of diversity. Typically, when we talk about diversity, we're only speaking of diversity of race. But diversity comes in different shapes and sizes and different forms. And one, one area of diversity that I believe is overlooked often, especially in the church, is the diversity of uh, professions, a diversity of vocation. Uh, and, and so I think typically what we have in the church is like those who are called to who, to sacred work, and then those who are called to secular work. And for most of church history, that has been a major split, that those who are called to religious work or God's work are somehow higher up on the vocational spectrum, and those who are called to secular work are typically not really called to it by God, they're just doing it because they, because they can't do secular, I mean, uh, religious work, and they do secular work, or they're, uh, they're uh, wanting to make money, or they want to be greedy, or whatever the... the, so, the the separation is that for most of history in the church, we put a lot of emphasis on the clergy or the religious workers and then kind of devalued the, those who are in the marketplace, those who are in the secular work. The Bible has talked about throughout Scripture, in Ephesians chapter 2, it talks about diversity of races, Jews and Gentiles. We see in Revelation 7-9 that there's going to be all nations and race and tongues and languages before the throne of God. We also see in Ephesians 4-7 and Romans uh, chapter 12 through through 8 and 1 Corinthians 12, 1 through 11, that diversity of gifts. Like Jesus Christ 
gives gifts according to his grace to his churches. That if you're a follower of Jesus, you are given a gift. And those gifts are diverse. They're different gifts, spiritual gifts, by which Christ gives to his church. But, like I said before, there's a diversity of professional skills and diversity of placement in the marketplace. Universities began in Europe and America primarily to train young men to religious work. Did you know that? That all the major universities in the world, Harvard, I mean Harvard, uh, Cambridge, Oxford, Paris, Boulogne, all these universities started with the single focus to train pastors. That has changed dramatically today. Most students who attend a college or university pursues a secular degree. Most are actually selecting STEM majors, science, technology, engineering, mathematics. Nine of the ten fastest growing occupations are in the STEM majors, and many, many more and more students are pursuing degrees in these majors. In 2015, two million bachelor degrees were received by students. Only 1% of those degrees were in the field of theology or religious studies. And actually, that number is much lower when you take out the philosophy majors. In 1997 and 1998.5% of bachelor degrees were in theological studies or religious vocations, 0.5%. Less than 2% of master's degrees are given out in the field of theology and religious vocations. In 2015, there was 14,271 master's degrees given out for theology or religious vocations, 14,000. In 2016, only 28,000 workers in America were working in a religious vocation. To tell you how much 78,000 makes up the entire American workforce, that is 0.05% of the American workforce. 0.05% of the American workforce. In 2014, 17% of 18 to 29-year-olds claimed to be evangelical Protestants. If churches and ministries use that number alone to calculate the number of recent bachelor degrees who would potentially want to use their skills for the sake of Christian ministry, the total number of mission-minded college graduates in the marketplace would be 314,488. 314,488. It is a complete waste that we are basically saying that those who have theological degrees or those who have religious vocational degrees are those who are actually called to gospel ministry. That is absurd. When three, based off these numbers, if, 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 if there were 300,000 evangelical Christians that graduated from a university or college and were saying, we don't need you in the mission field, you just go make money. That is absurd. It's absurd. 78,000 in religious vocations in 2015. The IMB Missionary and the International Mission Board, which is the largest mission organization in the world, it's connected to the Southern Baptist Convention. The money that you give to this church goes to the cooperative program, which goes to, goes to missionaries on the field. There are only 3,612 missionaries, 3,612 3, missionaries in the field. The numbers just don't add up. They don't meet what we need. We need to think differently about who is a missionary if we want to reach our communities in the world with the gospel. We need to think differently about who is a missionary if we want to reach our communities in the world with the gospel. The main point, the, the, the big point here is be a missionary where God has called you. 
Be a missionary where God has called you. And so before I get into 18, interesting thing about Paul's life. And the first sub-point is this, point at one, you are called to Christ. You are called to Christ. We struggle with calling, right? We think calling is simply those who are called to ministry, right? We hear it all the time, I am called to ministry. I think I've been called to ministry. I think Jesus has called me to ministry. So I, I need to go down and talk to the pastor because I've been called to ministry. Typically, when we think of calling, we're only thinking it in the context of mission work. I'm called to this place, I'm called to that place. But when we think of vocation, when we think of what you do with a, for a living, or who you marry, or all these things, these aren't callings. God's not even a part of these decision-making, which is not true. So the first way that we need to think about calling, the primary, the primary way that we need to find calling biblically is, number one, you are primarily called to salvation. You're primarily called to salvation. Think of even Paul's life in Acts chapter 9. He's on his way to Damascus, right? And what happens to him? He's blinded on his way to Damascus. 9.17. And so Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on Paul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with with the Holy Spirit. This is the primary calling of Paul's life was so, to salvation in Christ Jesus. God calls him to himself to be a worshiper through Jesus Christ. Not through the law, not through his Judaism, not through his traditions, but through Jesus Christ. That is who he is called to God through, is through Christ Jesus. Primarily, Christians are called by God to what? Salvation. You are not primarily called to be a teacher. You're not primarily called to be a pastor or a missionary. You're primarily called to what? Salvation in Christ Jesus. As followers of Jesus Christ, that is your primary call. Oz Guinness, who's one of my favorite Christian thinkers, wrote in a book called The Calling, which is actually in that bookshelf back there you can buy. Uh, I might be paid by him anyway, but he is a great author. Um, Our primary calling as followers of Christ is by him, to him, and for him. First and foremost, we are called to someone, God, not to something such as motherhood or politics or teaching, or to somewhere such as the inner city or outer Mongolia. We are called primarily to be followers of Christ. Have you been called to God through Jesus Christ? That is the prime. Before you start thinking about it, has God called me to this vocation or that vocation to live in this place, to live in that place, to marry this person, to marry that person? The most important decision or most important question to ask yourself is have you been called to God through Christ Jesus? Have you trusted in his saving grace for your sins? Have you trusted in his saving grace so that you may enter into the rest of God? All of us and some more than others can identify with guilt, with shame, and fear. Christ can give you redemption from your guilt. Christ can give you can give you love for your shame. He can give you power for your fear. Have you been called to God through Jesus Christ? That is far more important than what you're going to do for a living or where you're going to live. Are you called to salvation in Christ? That is the primary calling. The secondary calling is what we think about when we think about vocation, when we think about where he is sending us, placement, things like that, who to marry. And this is interesting about Paul's life. You know, he's called 
uh, to salvation in Acts 9, but even in Acts 16, 6 through 10, right? If you remember Paul's ministry story, where did he want to go? He wanted to go to Asia, right? He wanted to go into Asia. But what happens in Acts 16, verse 6? It says that they, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come to Malaysia, they attempted to go into Bethany, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we, he, we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Paul wanted to go to Asia. Where did Jesus call him? To Macedonia. This is not the primary calling of Paul's life. The primary calling of Paul's life is to be a Christian, to be a follower of Christ. But his secondary calling is he's called to go to Macedonia. Since you've been called to God for salvation, you've been called to God so defensively that everything that you are, everything that you do, everything that you invest in, the special devotion, vitality, and direction is a response to God's summons and service. So what you do, where you live, how you do it is rooted in your calling to God in Jesus Christ. And this is your secondary calling. Homemaking or the practice of law or art history, we are to do them what? Entirely for Christ. Paul even says this in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 7, verse 17. 1 Corinthians 7, 17. Only let each person lead his life that the Lord has assigned to him, to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. God has assigned you. He has called you. Now do that for his glory. Tim Keller wrote, Yet Paul is not referring in this case in 1 Corinthians 7, 17, to church ministry, but to com common social and economic tasks, secular jobs. We might say, in naming them God's calling and assignment, the implication is clear. Just as God equips Christians for building up the body of Christ, so he also equips all people with talents and gifts for various kinds of work for the purpose of building up the human community. Therefore, work or whatever secondary calling God has called you to is a service to God and the community. Not a service to your uh, bank account, not a service to your family, but ultimately a service to God. Why does that have to do with Paul in Acts 18? Paul does an interesting thing here in Acts 18. So he leaves Athens. He, he goes to Corinth. He's waiting for Timothy and Silas to meet him. And why he's there, he goes into Corinth. Corinth is a commercial center of the Roman Empire. Paul's strategy in his ministry was always to establish centers of Christian life. Paul did not go to every village and town in the Roman Empire. He went to major established centers, major established uh, cities and regions within the Roman Empire, and would create one established center of Christian life. And, and then through teaching and equipping and discipleship, those people would take it out to the surrounding villages. So he'd go to centers of Roman, Roman administration or Greek civilizations or Jewish influences or some commercial importance. And Corinth was definitely one of these cities that had great commercial importance. It had a very important location being on the Aegean Sea and the Mediterranean Sea. So many different groups of people would go into Corinth to do business and to do trade. 
Julius Caesar uh, actually reestablished Corinth as a major city in 44 BC. Actually, Corinth, there's a, 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 he called it, the, uh, Corinth was the praise of Julius, that this was his great city that he founded. That Corinth had great wealth and culture was concentrated in Corinth. It was also the vanity fair of the empire. It was a place you would go if you wanted to live, if you wanted to live kind of freely sexually, or you wanted to, uh, to hire some prostitute or these types of things. They actually used a verb to describe sexual promiscuity, and they would use the word Corinthiansing, or your Corinthiansing. You would actually, they made a verb out of the city itself. To be like the Corinthians. The city was very much like Las Vegas, or maybe Hollywood, or San Francisco. This was a major city, but also full of darkness and evil and wickedness. And Paul goes into this city, and he lives, and he works there. He meets Aquila and Priscilla, who's re recently just left from Italy. They're, they're considered the founding members of the church in Rome. He, he, they get a mention in Romans 16, 2-5. They're an encouraging family in Paul's ministry. They're always popping up as encouraging people, always assisting, always helping, always also working alongside co-workers, co-laborers with Paul, this couple. They're in Corinth because they've been kicked out of Rome because Claudius in his edict in 49 AD has basically commanded all the Jews to leave Rome because they are riding against each other because they're so divided over Christ and Christianity. So there's a large Jewish community, Jewish colony in Corinth due to its commercial identity. And Paul goes to there and he, he goes and he, he, he wants to see uh, Priscilla and Aquila. And they're of the same trade, and he stays with them, and he works with them. They were tent makers by trade. They worked with leather. leather. Tent makers, either they made tents, maybe out of cloth, or maybe it was a term used to mean that they were leather. They worked with leather. They traded in leather. And why did Paul, who is an apostle, we never hear that he's ever had a trade, but in Acts 18 we are told that he has a trade, that he has a skill. And he is a tent maker. He works with leather. Well, first off, he needs to do it here in Corinth because he needs to support himself. He doesn't have any money. He doesn't have any support. He's waiting for the support to come from Macedonia through Silas and Timothy to him. And so he's waiting for the support. And so in the meantime, he is working to support himself. And so he works with leather with Priscilla and Aquila. He also does this to avoid the avoidance of money-making schemes. It was, it was common in that era for rabbis or religious leaders to basically go on lecture tours to make money. Makes you think of like Hillary Clinton or Bill Clinton who made a lot of money through lecturing tours. And a lot of uh, politicians would, will go to and basically charge $100,000 plus to go speak at a university or speak at a company. It's a money-making scheme. So Paul, wanting to, to uh, present that he's a genuine person, that he's not using his words and his teachings to just make money. He decides what? Not to take any money and to work. This proves his genuineness. He even says to the, to the Corinthians that he didn't take any money from them. Why? So that they would not see any type of, of ungenuine attitude or mindset that he was only using them to make money. It's actually common in that, that century for rabbis to also learn a trade. Most rabbis, if not all rabbis, would also work 
and not just simply make money off their students. But also, he worked to identify with the people. This is a very trade-centric community. There's a large merchant class, an artisan class, a servant class. So by working in the community, by working in the marketplace, by working with these merchants and artisans and servants, he's developing extensive contact with people. He builds, by working in this community, he builds in connections with the community, within the community of Corinth. He develops a relational environment. Working in the, the marketplace of Corinth, the marketplace of Corinth, and provided opportunities for creating relationships. That is the advantage of secular vocations. You have a natural access to people. You're one of the crowds. You're accepted and recognized members of the community. Regularly observe, they regularly observe the effects of the gospel on the lives of believers. Right? For some of you who are Christians who live amongst unbelievers and you work amongst unbelievers. You get to live amongst them and work amongst them, and they get to see the effects of the gospel in your life. Most of our communication is actually nonverbal. 65 to 93% of all communication is nonverbal. What people see communicates more than what you say. By people regularly observing the effects of the gospel in the life of believers, it creates a non-biased argument to the effects of the gospel. You're not having an argument about the existence of God or, uh, or, the, or the New Testament. Is it reliable? Did Christ really raise from the dead? While those discussions are very, very important and those debates are very, very important, when you have those discussions, what's also very powerful and almost just as influential is when people see the effects of the gospel in your life. So Paul works amongst the community. He works amongst the Corinth, people of Corinth. He works amongst the merchants, the traders. And while he's doing that on the weekends, on Saturday, on the, on the Sabbath day, he reasoned with the Jews and Greeks in the synagogue on the Sabbath. Again, his primary calling is not to be a tradesman, not to be a tent maker, not to work with leather. His primary calling is a disciple of Christ. So on the weekends, he goes to the Sabbath and he debates with the Jews and the Gentiles about the validity of Jesus Christ. The genuineness of his ministry by laboring alongside Jews and Gentiles and then reasoning and debating with them in the synagogue on the Sabbath. So they would see him work amongst the, in the community. They would see him work as a tent maker. And then they would see him reasoning and arguing and pleading with them to trust in Jesus Christ for their salvation. That's why in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 19 through 23, he says a passage that we quote all the time. For through him, for though I am free from all, I have been made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became a Jew, in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law. Not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I may win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessing. Third point is, by all means necessary, reach the lost. By all means necessary, reach the lost. Paul goes to Corinth. He needs to support himself. 
He works. He needs to make connections to a city that is highly commercial, where most of the people in this city are part of the trade and the commercial empire of, enterprise of the empire. So he works and makes connections with unbelievers. He reasons with the Jews and Gentiles in the synagogue on the Sabbath. In verses 5 through 8, Silas and Timothy have come to him. They have provided the money that the Macedonians have provided him. And so he stops working, and he's occupied exclusively to the word. He begins testifying to the Jews that Christ was Jesus, that the Messiah, that the Son of God, was Jesus from Nazareth. He testifies, and he pleads with them, and he preaches to them, and he teaches them that Jew, to the Jews that Christ was Jesus. Of course, they reject him, and they revile him, and so he's done with the Jews. He's no longer going to talk and minister to them. He's only going to go to the Gentiles. And so he goes and he lives with Titus Justus, who uh, uh, scholars say is maybe Gaius, who is mentioned in 1 Corinthians 1.14 and Romans 16.23. He is a worshiper of God. He is not a Jew. He's a Gentile. He's identified the genuineness of Paul's message. He's seen Paul, maybe, in, in the marketplace when he's in his trade. He, he's seen Paul reason and, and proclaim the gospel in the synagogue. And he sees the effects of the gospel in his life. Crispus, who's a ruler of the synagogue, who is baptized by Paul, identifies with the genuineness of, as, of Paul's message. He's probably familiar with Paul. Why? Because Paul was always going to the synagogue and reasoning with the Jews and the Gentiles. Heard his testimony and his reasoning. Also saw the effects of the gospel in his life. That he's not some money-making schemer. He has genuine faith. He's a genuine teacher of the Bible, the teacher of God's word. And because Crispus and all of his family believe and are baptized, many of the Corinthians are hear the gospel and believe and are baptized. People maybe he met in his trade dealings and his reasoning in the synagogue. Extensive contracts with people. They heard and believed and were baptized. And by any means necessary, right? They heard the gospel, believed, and were baptized. So we don't know all these stories. We don't have all these details. But it's so interesting that Paul works in the marketplace, reasons with Jews and Gentiles in the synagogue. And what does that lead to? It leads to many people hearing and believing and being baptized. Paul has this vision with Jesus here in 9 and 10. May the promise of Christ empower you. Fourth point here. So Paul is doing this ministry. We have to remember, though, that Corinth is a very important city in the empire. It's full of all the pagan prostitution that's happening in the Roman Empire. There's a lot of darkness, there's a lot of sin, there's a lot of evilness in the city. And we, th we know from 1 Corinthians 2, too, that Paul says that he preaches nothing but Christ crucified. He talks about his weakness and his being terrified, his fear. So Jesus speaks to Paul. He says, do not be afraid. Don't be afraid. I understand that you're one man surrounded by this darkness. I understand that you're one man surrounded by this evil and this wickedness and this sinfulness. But don't be afraid. Go on speaking and do not be silent. He commands him. He encourages him. What's so interesting is that he encourages him, but then he doesn't just say, don't be silent. Keep on speaking and then ending there, right? I, I know as a runner when I ran, you know, people would always yell, run faster, run faster, catch up, catch up. 
There was never any, it was an encouragement, right? But there was never any kind of like, and by the way, if you do this, you will win, right? Or if you go do this, hey, run faster, kick the ball harder. If you do this, you will be successful. You, you will win. We say these encouraging things, but it doesn't necessarily always mean that it's going to, things are going to happen positively. But here, Jesus commands Paul to not be afraid, to go on speaking, do not be silent, for I am with you. I am with you. This is, this is the, the answer to the why. Why should I not be silent? Why should I not be afraid? Jesus says, because I'm with you. The power of Christ in you to fulfill the calling on your life. I'm with you. For I have many in this city who are my people. He calls them to not be afraid, to continue to speak, to not be silent, because he's with him, and because there are many in this city who are my people. There are many people who need to hear the gospel because they're going to believe it. This is the reason for his calling and ministry. This is the reason for our calling and ministry. God's people are among you. God has chosen to send you to proclaim the gospel to them. And they, like Crispus, will hear, believe, and be baptized. You don't know who these people are. Paul doesn't know who these people are, does he? He's like given a laundry list of people. Oh yeah, there's going to be Matthew, there's going to be a Luke, there's going to be a Peter, there's going to be a James, there's going to be a few women in there, and a Lydia or some other women. They're going to be amongst these people. Just go look for these people. You'll find them in this different place, in this different time. They'll be at this water cooler, at that particular spot. Then when you see them, go share the gospel with them and they'll believe. He has none of that information. He's just told and encouraged, don't be afraid. Do not be silent. Keep on speaking. Why? Because I'm with you, and there are those in this city who are my people, and they need to hear the gospel. There may be one of God's people in your office. You don't know that, by the way. You're completely ignorant of that. The one thing that you do know is, is that you're called to proclaim the gospel. You're called to that place, and God is telling you he's with you. Don't be silent. You don't know the people. You don't know them. You don't know if God has called them to gospel-saving faith. But he might. He might. There may be one in your apartment complex or in your class or in the coffee shop you work at. Remember your calling. Notice where he has you. Identify who he has sent you to live and work among. And by any means necessary, proclaim the gospel, knowing the Lord is with you and there are many of God's people among you. Among you. You see, we struggle so much with calling. Am I called here? Am I called there? You forget that you're called, what? To salvation in Christ. You're called to be a disciple of Christ. You're called to proclaim the gospel. You, are, you know that God is with you. So where he sends you, be faithful do not be silent. Do not be afraid. The Lord is with you there and proclaim the gospel because there may be many of his people among you. He ends this whole section here. He stayed and endured in gospel ministry. This is a lot of points. Stayed and endured in gospel ministry. Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half, teaching the word among them. He stayed for as long as God had had him to stay. To teach the gospel of Christ among them. Incarnational ministry is so important. Jesus did not come and proclaim the kingdom of God and salvation from the clouds. He came in person. He walked amongst the people. He spoke with them. He ate with them. He taught them. 
incarnational ministry. You, where you work and live is incarnational ministry. Too often the church relies on podcasts, on CDs, on DVDs of, 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 of uh, evangelists and pastors as that's the main means by which God's going to reveal his truth to people. But that's not how Jesus revealed the kingdom to people. And what did he do? He got to know people. He dined with them. He lived amongst them. And he proclaimed it. God has placed you where you are to reach the people with the gospel who are there. You must remain there, dedicated to living and working among them, showing them the effects of the gospel in your life, teaching them the gospel regularly. Then, when God calls you to, a, to, a, to another place and to another people, you leave and go to a new place with the same calling. The calling never changed. The people may change. The place of employment may change. The neighborhood may change. The apartment complex may change. The city may change. The column stays the same. We've been talking about this entire series. That we want to make worshipers of God. That's that primary calling of the gospel. To be a follower of Christ. To be a worshiper of God through Christ. To be a disciple of Christ. That you're a disciple of Christ. That you follow Christ. That you live by his word. That you're a member to the church. That you're a member of Christ's church. If you've been saved by Christ, you are a part of the church. And while being a part of the church, you are to serve the church with the sacrificial love of Christ. As Pastor didn't preach last week in John 13. Regardless where you are, regardless if you're in Evansville or Indianapolis or Fort Wayne, you are called what? To be a worshiper of God through Christ, to be a disciple of Christ, to be a member of the church. Even if it's not as good as the church back in Evansville or back home, you're still called to be a member of the church. And you're called to do what? Serve, regardless of who those people are. You're called to serve. You're also called to be a missionary. Where are your connection points to the lost? Your connection points to the lost are not through me or through Denton. Your connections to the lost are where you work, where you interact with people, where you live, where you get your coffee. I know some of you, you get your coffee at the same place as I get my coffee. We see the same people. We are all connected to lost people. And if you rely on me and Denton to be the people that you meet that are lost, you are forgetting that, that you have been placed in a particular place and amongst different people to proclaim the gospel to them. And you are not living out your calling. Even if you're not called to be a big end missionary, even if you're not called to be a P, big P pastor, you are still called to gospel ministry. You are. If you're denying this fact, you're denying the truth of the Bible. We are all commanded to make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and know that God is with you always, even to the end of the age. You have so many connections to the lost. Are you seeing your job in your neighborhood as your center for gospel ministry? In this room, if this needs to happen in this room, I'm commissioning you now to be missionaries where you live and work. When I was at my, before I went off to Sweden with Campus Crusade for Christ, we had a commissioning uh, ceremony. And we stood up, and this, the, the president of uh, Campus Crusade for Christ commissioned us to go as missionaries. Okay. So I'm going to now commission you 
as a minister of the gospel, knowing God's word and believing it to be true on my life and in yours, I am commissioning you to be a missionary where you work and live. Okay? And by any means necessary, make the gospel known to the people that you live amongst and work amongst. Do not be afraid. Speak and do not be silent. There are many among you who are God's people. Do you believe that to be true? Do you believe that's only given to me or to Denton? Do you only give it to those who do the theological or religious vocations? Do you remember the numbers I presented? If that is true, then there's going to be a lot of people that will never hear the gospel. That is a fact. If we rely on the 78,000 people that are in the workforce in religious vocations, and you think those 78,000 are somehow going to reach the world with the gospel, you are crazy. You're crazy. But if the millions and millions of Christians realize they were commissioned to be missionaries where they worked and lived, there would be millions upon millions upon millions of those proclaiming the gospel boldly. And there's millions upon millions upon millions of people that will hear the gospel. Amen? Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you so much for your word. We praise you, Lord, that you have called us to be missionaries. You've called us to make disciples. Lord, we are so thankful for that calling. Now, Lord, you have called us to different places. You've called us to different places to live, different places to work, different friendships different coffee shops to go to, different restaurants to go to. You called us to these secondary things. But Lord, that those things are underneath our callings as followers of Christ. Help us, Lord, to do that well. Lord, if there's anyone here, this is not just for Christians. There's anyone here who has never trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the primary calling by which Paul understood before he ever did any ministry work, was he needed to be called to saving grace. Lord, I pray for anyone here who's never trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ for their forgiveness of their sins. Lord, that you would lead them to saving grace. Lord, that you would lead them to talk to one of us. Lord, to be uh, to share with them the gospel. Lord, to answer any questions that they may have. Lord, for our, for my brothers and sisters here, we're in the workplace uh, or at home with their children, uh, living in a, an apartment complex or a house or a neighborhood. Lord, I pray, Lord, that you would open their hearts and minds. To be missionaries on, 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 on mission, Lord. Lord, open their mouths to speak. Take away any fear that they have. And Lord, help them to realize that there are many among them that are God's people. We call them out, Lord, to speak to them and minister to them. Lord, we love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.